Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm-hmm. You say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. And welcome to Script Shop, everybody. I'm Jack. And I'm Allison. And we're in a studio that smells like bananas right now. <laughs> See, now I can't even do it. Okay, we just recorded this whole intro talking about bananas, mm-hmm. and Jack didn't have the record button Yeah, on. we didn't record it. We were just talking into microphones for like a solid two minutes. So he wants me to be all slick. Yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to recreate the moment that can't be recreated. But it does smell like bananas in here because Allison was <clears> eating <throat> a banana. And Well, I was, and I'm not. And bananas are delicious. Anyway, we are here to talk about scripts, though. Uh, we like your scripts. We like to read other people's scripts yeah. and then talk to them about their work. That's what Script Shop is. That's We're obsessed why with them. There we are. And that's why you're listening right now. Our script writer, our screenwriter today, is he's got maybe the coolest name out of anybody yeah. we've had so far, right? Yeah, I mean, Carter Moon. Carter Moon. That's a great name. That's a great name. It almost sounds, if you say it badly, it sounds like Carterman. A little bit, yeah. Carterman. We have to make sure we, our pronouncers are properly warmed up. Carter Moon. Carter wrote a script called Big Ed. It's a uh, series pilot script, actually. He's looking to be, have a series made out of this. And it's actually based on real stuff. It's based on Ed Kemper, yeah, the killer, mm. uh, who there is some uh, production stuff about him going on right now, which we will we'll talk with Carter about. But we were saying before, this is, I think, the first show that we've done where the script is based on specifically real life stuff. Right. And it's going to be really interesting talking to him about how you, because you're not necessarily, you're not fictionalizing it, but mm-hmm. you but you are telling the story. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the difference between reporting and storytelling in this way. Right. Or, um, you know, what you may hype up for the story or details that he's added or what he's had to fa- find, et cetera. Yeah, it's an ad. I mean, you're, you're still adapting at the end of the day. Yeah. That's going to be really cool to get into. So we should, uh, we need to let people know about where they can find us. If you like social media, we're definitely in that world. Right. So just a couple of little housekeeping things before we dive into quickly. If um, you like us and you like following us and you like the shenanigans that go on. Um, if you like bananas. Yeah. Mm, I didn't post any. Well, not not yet. Yeah, that's the thing. Now I must. <laughs> if you like this, you should look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Jack and I both uh, contribute to these accounts. And uh, if you look up Script Shop Show on any of those things, you can find us. Jack has a- I made I made a public Twitter account now. I held into, I, I've still got my private one that I hold on to very dearly. But I, as a favor to all y'all out there, mm-hmm. you're welcome. I'm <laughs> in the world now. If you want to find me at Script Shop Jack. Uh, it's worth it. It's fun. It's so worth it. And you know, Jack doesn't have Facebook. No. He's sworn this off long ago due to the debauchery of society. That's just, I just, it's just too much. I don't want to get, I don't want, we don't need to sidetrack everybody into that whole thing. It's just right. not my thing and I'm not into it, but you should find us on it because clearly it may, meters it's fun. matters a lot to everybody it's fun. else. And um, if you're interested in being on the show or just seeing a little bit more about what we are about, go to scriptshopshow.com. That's our website sweet promo photos that we had a fun time taking mm-hmm. and uh you can check out our bios check out the other great writers we've had on the show you can also submit scripts if you've yeah. got a piece of writing that you want to put in front of us scriptshopshow.com slash submit and uh that'll be a way for us to take a look at uh, what you've written and uh, be on the show right um it's fun getting your scripts because we learn new things that we didn't know before right so help us not be stupid Come yeah. teach us some things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Speaking of being learning things and being taught, let's yes. uh, let's have Carter on. Carter Moon, hi, how are you? Hi, doing well. How are you guys? Carter, thanks for being on the show. We appreciate it. Of course. Um, Carter, you're calling us from Los Angeles this morning, right? That is correct. That's where I'm currently living, uh, trying to make it in show business and entertainment as a screenwriter and everything. Yeah. That, um, the dream. It's a hard grind, but that's what I'm at. What's it? I mean, could you just tell us a little bit, like what it's like for you right now? So right now, I work for a casting company. Um, I sort out all the non-union uh, commercials and like student films and even feature films, um, and I kind of like go through their 
postings and make sure everything is kosher. Um, I make sure like casting directors are who they're claiming to be. And then I put out their casting notices for them. Um, it's an incredibly tedious and boring job, but it is a day job that keeps me vaguely in the entertainment industry, um, pays the bills and everything while I try to kind of grind as a writer and get my work out there. Right. What, what does grind as a, as a writer mean then? Are you like working in the evenings on your scripts? No, or? I mean, I, I work on scripts. I spend a lot of my free time writing, um, or at least I have, I haven't been writing as much the past couple months. Um, but yeah, I spend a lot of my time writing. Um, I spend a decent amount of time trying to go to different events and meet other people in the industry. Uh, try to make connections with uh, other people who are making stuff right now. Try to make those those friendships and everything. Um, and yeah, like like list my stuff on the blacklist. Try to get it out there that way as well. Um, yeah. What's the blacklist? What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, the blacklist is a script uh, hosting service where you can pay $25 a month to have your scripts listed there. And at least in theory, uh, read by people in the industry who are looking for scripts. You mm-hmm. can kind oh, of cool. like tag them and sort them by, um, you know, your specific topics. Uh, so that if somebody saying is looking to make a period drama about a serial killer, they can search tags and find uh, Big Ed and they would uh, be able to download it and read it and see if it's something they wanted to make an offer on. I'm just going to have to do a little plug here, but Script Shop may have something like that in the works soon. Oh. Yeah, well, that, would be, that would be fantastic, because I have to admit I have a lot of uh, complaints about the Blacklist and kind of like how their service works right now. Well, good. You send all your complaints our way, and we'll make sure they don't <laughs> sure. happen. Sure, sure. So, I just, I just, to me, I think their, their service kind of does take advantage of like writers who are desperate to like have their work validated and read and everything because they do offer a service where you can pay to have your script read and give it a numerical rating. Mm. And you know, it's, it's $75 to have it done. And if you get less than like a seven or an eight out of 10 on their system, there's not a high chance of getting downloaded um, and getting found. Um, so I think, I think it does just kind of like take people's money and everything in a way that just feels a little cynical. Well, you know, too, you talk about validation as a writer, and mm. what kind of validation do you find for yourself writing really in the heart of the screenwriting industry in Los Angeles? You know, I have to admit that in the year or so that I've been living here, there's not a whole lot of validation. <laughs> um, there's, there's not a lot that you can necessarily get if you're, especially if you're exclusively a writer, like I am, um, and you're not, you know, directly working in a writer's room in some capacity, um, or, you know, having feature films made or something like that. Um, it's really hard to, to, to find people who are willing to read your work and willing to, um, give it an honest shot, I guess. Uh, that's what I found so far at least. Yeah. It seems like you haven't been there that long though. No. Yeah. I've been here since June of 2016. Um, and everything and but yeah it's been it's been an interesting year i would say well tell us about that move where where were you coming from and why did you decide to move to la yeah. so i uh i majored in screenwriting at uh, chapman university down in orange county so after i graduated i it wasn't that big of a leap to come up here and you know find an apartment find a job and everything uh, i got my day job at um this casting company i work for pretty much within three weeks of graduating. Um, so I really lucked out in that front. Um, but yeah, it's like I, I moved up here and I actually had my senior thesis get an offer on it pretty much immediately. That's cool. Um, nice. I'd had it on the blacklist and everything. And I had a producer approach me and give me uh, a limited option deal to try developing it into a feature and everything. Um, that, relationship didn't end up working out. The script kind of just fizzled out into nothing, which, you know, happens very often in this industry. Um, and since then I've been, you know, writing continuously on my own projects and everything, but in terms of like making connections to find somebody willing to fund a script, I haven't really made any yet. Yeah. But again, and this is my personal stance on like professional Mm. career moves. You have to get yourself settled as a person living 
continuing to yep. meet people and friends and be out there just like you're doing. And ov- yep. over time, those relationships usually develop into something else. Mm-hmm. Sure. I have plenty of really great relationships from film school. There's a lot of really good people I know. Um, and there's even uh, a director I know that I have a really great relationship with. Uh, he made a short film out of a script I wrote and everything. And I would love to make something with him in the future and keep working on that. But, you know, it's these things take time um, and everything. So I think I think the the waiting game of of getting scripts actually developed and made is something that's been interesting to kind of like learn to adapt to. Mm-hmm. as I've been here in L.A. Right. So I know that a lot of the guests that we've had, Allison, you have met through going to film festivals and, and meeting people that way. But how, how did we come to have Carter on the show? We have a mutual friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, how do you know Becky, Carter? Becky is actually one of my mom's best friends from college. Oh. And she's been my Aunt Becky basically my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, shout yeah, out to Aunt I, Becky. I go and I stay with her in San Diego every once in a while. Yeah. She lives now with her husband. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was how we got connected. Yeah. So Becky is also like my Hawaii mom from when I lived in Hawaii. Oh, she took care of me. I always forget about the colorful life that you've led before Cincinnati came around. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It makes me feel really so, special. <laughs> so, so Becky is Carter's Aunt Becky, but she's your Hawaii mom. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. So you yeah, guys are like yeah. cousins. Yeah, we she, are. We're cousins. A lot of people. Yes. Oh, I have yeah. this new cousin. She's a very I didn't sweet even lady. Know. Yeah, it's so, a family reunion. Carter, have you been writing yeah. your whole life? You know, I really haven't been writing my whole life. Um, in high school, I got really into filmmaking and trying to make uh, films. I was on our uh, school's TV show. And everything and would make little short films for that and everything anytime there was a class project where i could make films i would make them um but as i kind of like went through high school i came to discover that like i wasn't the best at like the production side of making films and everything and i i quickly kind of realized that like the writing and the coming up with the precise aspects of like the the blueprint of what a, a film should be was what I was kind of more naturally drawn to. Storytelling, though. So I really just started writing in earnest um, when I got to college and everything hmm. and started majoring in screenwriting. So you knew going into college what you wanted to do? Oh, yes, very much so. I I would say in high school, the first couple of years, I really like struggled with the, the motivation to do well in school and struggled with, you know, why am I even bothering to go to school, I guess? Um, you know, I liked learning and everything, but I just didn't enjoy the, the process of, you know, doing homework every night and right. turning in things on time and those kind of things. Like, I was kind of an aloof student, I would say. And I found film production and TV production, and I loved it, and it kind of gave me this, like, focus and everything. And that kind of motivated me as, like, well, this is how I'm going to go to college, and this is what I'm going to major in because, like, Otherwise, it was really hard to see myself going to college and getting anything out of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people go through it. I think a lot of people who are predisposed to doing things on, on a creative side of things feel mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I knew from a very early age I needed to do something creative with my life. Um, when I was in middle school, I would do um, creative storytelling competitions where I would get like a basic prompt and have like 30 minutes to write a story and then I would have to perform it. Um, and I got pretty good at that. And I really, really enjoyed that. And that was like the first time I found something that I felt like I kind of naturally excelled in. Um, and then I also um, dabbled in stand-up comedy in like eighth grade. I was wondering why you were chuckling while you said that, but you were an eighth grade stand-up comic. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's the deal with applesauce? I don't know that I was actually any good, but, you know, that was something I thought I wanted to do before I kind of, like, realized that was untenable as an actual career. I got really lucky that I happened to have, like, a really great television production um, teacher in high school who really encouraged me and, you know, encouraged my growth in a lot of ways and kind of, like, mentored me uh, really well. And so, yeah, that gave me a lot of focus and gave me something to really like strive towards um, in terms of what I would go to college for and everything. So you wrote this script. It's for a pilot series. that It's titled Big Ed, and it's about a serial killer, and it's a fairly 
psychologically intense or at least not casual uh, kind of script. Where did this come from out of you then? Yeah, so I had been uh, hiking with a friend and kind of talking about how like paranormal horror movies generally don't tend to scare me very much, but that like psychological thrillers tend to and everything. I was mm-hmm. telling him how much I like Silence of the Lambs and Psycho. And he was like, well, yeah, I think, I think um, a lot of the time like serial killers are scary because they're real and they actually exist. And then he told me about this guy, Edmund Kemper, and said I should look into him maybe because he, to him, kind of like represented this archetype of a serial killer. And I look into him and I like, you know, go on his Wikipedia profile and I like found some interviews with him on YouTube and very quickly realized like this was a person I wanted to make a film about. Um, and so that was in say the late summer of 2013. And since I was in the screenwriting program, that was the first feature I wrote was about Edmund Kemper. Um, and that feature took me all the way from like fall of 2013 until the, uh, spring of 2015 to finish just because it was my first feature. And I kept like reworking it and rewriting it and restarting it, trying to get it exactly right. Um, and then I eventually finished the feature and, you know, it was good because it was my first feature I'd ever done and it felt satisfying to finish it, but something just felt like it was incomplete. And I kind of returned to the script, um, this year in the sort of January, February of this year, and realized that like I really needed to expand it into a uh, miniseries, into to a single season of television, and that was going to be the only way to really tell this story effectively. Okay, yeah, because you you need time to let it breathe and cover as much yeah. as this guy did. Yes, yes. the The scope and depth of his crimes is something that like to really tell the full story to get everything out there you need 10 to 12 hours rather than two right um do you think that you're drawn to the way these types of real life stories make you feel you know like you're talking about your friend says hey go check out this terrifying guy and you say oh yes i need to do that (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah i think i think for me Film as a medium, television as a medium, can they, they can have this odd effect where they either warp reality and they make it harder to understand the real world around us, or they can kind of like crystallize and sharpen the real world and make us see something in more plain relief mm-hmm. than we could otherwise in our day-to-day lives. And I very much lean towards bringing things into relief, sort of like showing things as they really are as much as possible through uh, screenwriting and through film and television. Well, and based on your feelings on psychological thrillers and stuff, for you Mm -hmm. personally, being that honest about humanity just makes it scarier, right? Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways it does. Like, to to me, like, human beings can be very terrifying very easily. Like, it's... It's something where, where I think it's, it's easy to go through our day-to-day lives and through polite society and sort of like not be forced to reconcile these sort of darker corners that exist mm-hmm. in human beings. But they are things that exist. And to me, we're all better off if we can start to sort of like honestly assess why they happen and why they exist. That's a big part of um, Big Ed and telling the story of Edmund Kemper. Um, is sort of approaching that he didn't exist in a vacuum, that he's not some monster that came out of nowhere, that there are explanations for why he did what he did. Yeah, I agree with you on that. He's a human being. He's he's a person who chose right. to do some terrible stuff, but it, you know, it's not like a storybook evil force or supernatural thing. He's a person who chose to do terrible things. Exactly. Exactly. And to me... It's only when we start to try to really reconcile that and we try to understand why that we can start to try to figure out ways to engineer society, engineer culture, so that people like Edmund Kemper no longer exist. Yeah. Um, Would you mind for our listeners and also for us just talking a little bit about Edmund Kemper's story and what you've learned? 
Yeah, yeah. So not all of this gets covered in my pilot, because my pilot is very much just an introduction to the story. But an overview of Edmund Kemper's life. Um, he was sent away from his mother to go live with his grandparents at the age of 15. And he killed his grandparents um, because he got into an argument with his grandmother and he shot her in the back of the head. His grandfather came home. He was terrified. So he shot his grandfather as well. Um, He was put in a mental institution where he actually befriended the psychiatrists who were working there and was able to convince them that he was cured um, of, of any psychopathy. From there, he was released. And he was forced to go live with his mother because he had nowhere else to live. Uh, he had a lot of resentment and anger towards his mother. He saw his mother as sort of trying to domineer and control him. He also found himself unable to connect with women in any genuine way. And so he started driving around Northern California, picking up hitchhiking women and killing them and killing them brutally. And I'll give a disclaimer right now. He did some really horrible things to their bodies, um, mutilated them in horrible ways, beheaded them, had sex with their bodies. It was really graphic and really terrible. Um, This whole time while he was doing this, he also was drinking with the police in a local bar called the jury room. And um, in that bar, he would kind of talk to them and needle them and get information out of them so that he could always kind of stay a few steps ahead of them in terms of them actually catching him for any of these crimes he was committing. Wow. Um, eventually, he snapped one night and killed his mother in a fit of rage. He beheaded his mother. Um, he killed one of his mother's best friends for apparently no reason. And then he drove for two days, expecting a manhunt to come after him. And the police didn't even know he had committed any of these crimes. They didn't oh, even yikes. know they needed to be looking for him. Eventually, he gave up and he turned himself in in Pueblo, Colorado. Oh, You're wow. kidding. Those are sort of the like plot facts of his story, at least. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. Yes, yes. And additionally, it should be stressed this whole time. Part of the reason why the Santa Cruz Police Force was doing so poorly at catching him was because they had had another serial killer in Santa Cruz at the same time that Edmund Kemper was. Yeah, that's in your script, the thing with the with the priest yeah. and all that. Yes. So so there was another guy named Herbert Mullen who was deeply schizophrenic, um, a, a broken man who had voices in his head telling him that he needed to kill people in order to stop uh, California from breaking off of the United States and falling into the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. Um, so he was he was a deeply disturbed, crazy man. Um, who killed a bunch of people in seemingly erratic ways and just brought this like wave of murder and terror to Santa Cruz. And sort of under that cover was how Edmund Kemper started committing his murders because there was already such chaos in this town that, you know, a few additional women getting murdered just seemed to be part of this larger crime wave that had suddenly hit Santa Cruz. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's one of those things where, like, you know, I've been – obsessed with this story for four years, five years almost at this point, And it still is crazy when I try to spell it out and say it all out loud. Right. And Carter, I actually have a question for you. And this is one of those questions mm-hmm. that like if we were meeting in a restaurant or bar would be totally inappropriate, but because we're on script shop, I'm allowed to. Sure. And we're on the phone. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Sure. Um, and you know, I, I want to know like what your relationship with your mom is like, because it's going to feed into your interpretation of this one way or another, sure. you know? Sure. You know, I, I actually have to say my relationship with my mom is great. I <laughs> oh, that's so boring. And we talk basically, we message each other basically every day. Um, we have a really good, healthy relationship. And I'd, I'd like to think that my good relationship with my mom is a big reason why I'm kind of like, so horrified by Edmund Kemper's relationship with his mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. Um, well, yeah, that and also yeah, the fact that you're still a human being who recognizes awfulness. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, and I think, and I think in general, I was, I was raised by a mom who like did essentially raise me as a feminist, raised me as a person who like saw like that women are routinely 
mistreated in our society and our culture and are um, brought down in a lot of ways. And that, that um, violence towards women isn't something that should be normalized or supported. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I think, I think that's why uh, this story attracts me in particular is because it's, it's such a, a stark um, reminder of just how, you know, awful men can be to women when they really are allowed to be. Well, and especially the fact that this guy was able to fly under the radar for so long. Yes, yes. I think I think a big thing I'm kind of drawn to about the story is the fact that the police couldn't pick up on how disturbed Kimber was. The, the fact that, like, this all-male police force wouldn't take the time to, you know, listen to women who were creeped out by him. Wouldn't yeah. take the time to sort of, you know, consider that their buddy Ed might be somebody capable of these horrible crimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a narrative that we're seeing play out over and over and over again um, right now, you know, with all these allegations that come out against uh, powerful men. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that there are other men who are letting them continue to get away with this. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's like you said, not listening to people who are, creeped out and like just intuition and vibes on stuff and yeah speaking of which that is the scene that we have from your yeah 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 um we're gonna go ahead and dive into a reading of a selection from the script anytime i say that it makes me feel like i should be wearing a beret in a coffee shop <laughs> gonna be with, like a cigarette <laughs> we're gonna do a reading from a selection of the script by carter moon when the audience enjoys it at the end they're gonna snap their fingers mm-hmm. instead of clapping mm-hmm Yes, exactly. Yeah, man. Okay, so um, for the for our listeners, I want to let you know that Jack today is going to be playing Ed. Big Ed. Big Ed, the title character. He was mm, actually. I love this about you, Jack. Jack was researching like what this guy sounds like in real life. So Jack did a little bit of yeah. research on that. I'm going to be playing um, Betty Sue, who's meeting him in a diner for a date. Um, Carter is going to be reading our stage directions and our action headings in the script. And as per the usual, our favorite guy, Frank, is here in the studio. I'm a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Frank's here. And uh, Frank's going to be playing (laughs) the part of the waitress. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Again, for our listeners, we try to keep things gender specific, but uh, today there's Three men, one woman, and, you know, we've got to split the roles up. So we're switching the gender from the waitress to a waiter, and um, Carter has let us know that that's okay in terms of this reading of the script. So, um, Carter, we're on page 51. Whenever you're ready, you can begin with our action heading of the Wavy Gravy Diner. Interior, Wavy Gravy Diner, night. A classic 50s diner, if it weren't just a little worn down. Walk Like a Man by Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons plays through the jukebox that's definitely sounded better. And fluorescent lights just accentuate a thin layer of grime that seems to cling to everything. Ed is seated in a booth, his large frame filling up most of the seat. He speaks very earnestly while glancing through the menu. Now, I can eat a whole 24-ounce steak just fine in one sitting, don't worry, but it gives me awful gas. I wouldn't want to subject that to you, you know, as I'm pressing my mouth to yours and all the lighter. Ed laughs, then bleaks while waiting for a response that doesn't come. Do you like this song? I think Frankie's a bit of a queen, but I know all the girls like him, so I thought maybe. Just then, Walk Like a Man ends. Ed scoffs in exasperation and gets up from the table. When he does, it's revealed that he's been addressing an empty booth. Ed fishes a quarter out of his pocket and plugs it into the jukebox, starting the song all over again. He returns to his seat. Anyway, like I was saying, I was thinking maybe this could be our song one day. I thought you might like that. Just a little. You gonna order? A peeved waitress interrupts Ed. He doesn't hide his displeasure. I'll call you over when my girlfriend gets here. I'm a guest here. It's rude to interrupt a guest. A date, huh? Ed squirms, trying to maintain his composure as the waitress leaves. He turns his attention back to his imaginary date. Some people, you know. Reminds me of this time I was deer hunting. I'm great with a rifle, always been a natural. Anyway, I've got this knife. I call it the general, about yay long, and... Ed breaks from his reverie when his date, Betty Sue, early 30s, thick rim glasses, minimal makeup, finally enters. Ed bounds out of his seat, his huge frame knocking the table out of place. Betty! Uh, Betty Sue! Right here! Yep, that's me. I'm... Betty Sue walks over to Ed, her eyes widening as she realizes just how huge he really is. Hi! Edmund, 
Um, yes, it's nice to... Friends call me Ed. Here, I could take that. Ed yanks the coat off Betty's shoulders and awkwardly places it on the seat for her, smoothing it out. Please, take a seat. Thank you. I, uh, uh, well... Betty Sue settles in. Ed does the same, pushing the table even more towards her in the process. I just like for my ladies to be as comfortable as possible. Not saying that I have other ladies, I'm just saying that I'm a gentleman. Uh, I didn't think that. I was just, um... Can we push this table back a little? I'm... Ed ignores Betty Sue's attempts to fix the table. Well, no, I was just trying to say that I know how to take care of a woman, that's all. I... All right. Betty finally writes the table, folding her hands neatly on it. Uh, the, the waiter walks over. Finally get you folks something? Just a beer. Water with lemon. Uh, wait, what do you mean, finally? Uh, boyfriend's been here a while. We don't serve beer. He's not... I mean, this is our first... What do you mean you don't have beer? What kind of place is this? Not that kind of place. I'll bring you two waters. Order something else when I get back. The waiter walks off briskly. Ed chuckles. <laughs> Some people, you know. That reminds me of this time that I was deer hunting. I'm great with a... Did you tell her that we're an item? I might have let something slip. I don't... That doesn't make me very comfortable, Mr. Kemper. Just call me Ed. It just seems very presumptuous. Oh, I see. Here I had this lovely evening planned out, and you just go and sour everything. Ed goes uncharacteristically quiet. Betty Sue casts around for conversation. Mm. It's been a long time since I went on a date in a diner. I think I must have been 16 the last time. Walk like a man ends once again, and Ed gets up to start it. When he does, he shoves the table back towards Betty Sue. The waiter returns with the waters. He looks over at Ed by the jukebox. Don't start it again, please. But Ed does anyway. Betty, shoot, Betty Sue shoots a pleading look to the waiter just as Ed returns to the table. The waiter leaves, but not before returning the look to Betty Sue. You like this song? I think Frankie Valley's a queen myself, but I know girls like him, so... Well, again, I haven't listened to him in years. He's not really... You really are old, aren't you? <sighs> Joe didn't tell me. I'm not that... I feel like we've gotten off on the wrong foot. Why don't we... You probably would have found a husband by now if you'd just bothered to put on a little makeup. Betty Sue just stares at Ed in disbelief. I mean, yeah, you're not much of a looker, but some guys would have settled for you. I'm sorry, I don't think this is going to work out. She gets up decisively, but Ed grabs her wrist. Wait, where are you going? Let go, please. Betty Sue's eyes are wide with fear. Ed looks like he doesn't know what to do. Walk like a man keeps playing. I thought maybe this could be our song. You better let her go, fella. The waiter has appeared by the booth, a burly busboy backing him up. The whole restaurant watches. Ed snaps out of it. Excuse me. Terri terribly sorry. Here, let me help you with your coat. Ed gets up and once again bumps the table out of place. Ah, uh, jeez. I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a bumble butt, you see. I. Betty Sue has already left the diner. Ba-boom. Scene. Oh, that's so yeah. creepy. Now, yeah. was that restaurant scene? Is that is I mean, because you're, you're more familiar with this guy's history, uh, was that sure. him having an interaction in a restaurant like that? Was that based on anything? He he mentions in one of his interviews, he mentions um, trying to go on a date after he got out of the mental asylum, and sort of not being able to know how to talk to girls and everything. And specifically, what he touches on that I think is really fascinating is that like he kind of felt like he missed the whole flower child hippie part of the 60s okay. because he was in the institution. And so in terms of relating to women that were his age, he really struggled. And even, you know, uh, just relating to women in general, obviously, he didn't know how to do it anymore. Yeah. Because, yeah, so this is the 70s in, in Nor Northern right. California, right? Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, so he was you know, locked the, up. And the free love movement is in full swing there, and he just can't identify with it or understand it at all. He kind of is very much like trying to stay back in the 50s, um, and uh, the world has moved on without him. So because this is based on a real thing and you're writing for a series mm -hmm. because you recognize that you need, like you said, 10 to 12 hours instead of just two for like a feature film, how much does that involve you having it all planned out since, I mean, not that the story's been written, but history's already happened? 
Right, right. Um, so when I was deciding to adapt the feature into a um, series, I, I very much uh, sort of sat down and tried to figure out if like there were enough plot points in the story of Kemper and the wider things that were going on in Santa Cruz at the time to kind of justify, um, you know, 10 to 12 hours of television. And I don't have, you know, the the treatments for every episode written or anything like that, but I do definitely know that, like, there is more than enough story there for 12 hours of television. Mm-hmm. We're, and um, you can tell us this vaguely if you need to, but, like, mm-hmm. What? Where do you see your storyline going on this guy? Like, what's the series? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the way I kind of see it is, um, after this pilot episode, there's there's a really key moment where um, this this date that Ed goes on is with a woman that the sheriff of Santa Cruz sets him up with, um, Joe Roberts and his wife. Um, set Ed up on this date. And so Joe's wife, Nancy, finds out that this date went horribly and that Ed was a giant creep. Um, She tells Joe, and Joe ignores him, uh, or ignores his wife. As a result, he he doesn't look into Ed as a potential subject or suspect when uh, these crimes are continually committed. Um, Sort of the, the fatal flaw of Joe... Um, if you want to talk in terms of like tragic terms, um, is that he can't recognize this evil person that he's befriended, even um, though he's the top he cop in town. Wild investigation, trying to solve these murders, but he's never looking at the person who's sitting right next to him in a bar. Yeah, and even though he's the top cop in town, he's got this dude that's right there in his orbit, and he he just can't see the forest mm-hmm. for the trees. And he can't and he can't recognize him for what he is. Yeah, because he won't trust his wife because he won't listen to the women around him who tell him that this guy is creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have Jack go through some of the plot points of this first episode for sure. us. Yeah, so I mean, you said he's he's friendly with police. He's this big giant guy who doesn't really relate well with with women, and he has a hard time connecting with people in general. He's he's big and he's awkward, and his personality is every bit as big and awkward as he is. Uh, he's friends with all the local police who are currently dealing with this actual murder investigation that this, like you were telling us before, that this whole other person is committing, that they have no clue is there's actually two different weirdos in this little sleepy town. The police chief, the the sheriff, Joe, that you were talking about, more than once in the script, talks about how he sort of took this job to be sheriff because it is a sleepy town. He thought he was going to kind of get a pass on it, and now all of a sudden he's been thrown into the deep fryer with a serial killer, more than one, he doesn't even realize, uh, in town, and Ed is friends with the cops, and he's, I, he, I, in uh, one of the adaptations, we're going to talk about Mindhunter in a second, because Ed figures into that mm. too, he refers to himself as like, a, or did you say friendly nuisance? Yes, yeah, that is how he, how he refers to himself in Mindhunter, and I think that, that's, that's how he saw himself was as this this guy who kind of, you know, pestered the police. And they kind of saw him almost as a, as a groupie who was just fascinated by their work. Um, he actually at one point tried to join the California Highway Patrol. Right. And uh, he was too big to join it. He couldn't ride on the motorcycles because he was just too large. Yeah, and so in the meantime then, in his free time, when he's not hanging out with cops, he's going on these drives and looking for hippie cute girls that are hitchhiking on the side of the road in, in 1970s Northern California. Right. Right. Um, yeah, he's, he's, um, living very much a, a double life and a, in a closed off life. The one, um, the one other the, thing, the life of constantly deceiving people. The one other thing plot wise about him is as far as his relationship with his mother, the way you've written it in this pilot, it's a very sort of Bates Motelli psycho unhealthy relationship. Mom mom is abusive to say the least. Right, right. Um but as the, the series kind of progresses, you come to realize that she wasn't abusive for no reason. Um that you know, there were there were there are things in their history, um 
as mother and son that sort of make her behave the way she does. Wow. Okay. That's yeah. And now that we've learned more about from what you've told us about this guy, yeah, because mm. just I, I just read this script blind from the pilot, and sure. she's straight up mean to him. Right. Right. She seems vicious and cruel, and you almost you know sympathize with with Ed in terms of just like he is being beaten down by yeah. his mother relentlessly. Um, but yeah, hopefully as the series progresses, we will come to understand why she feels the need to be that way. In terms of writing the pilot episode for a series, mm-hmm. how did you decide between um, basically how much exposition versus kind of contained action you would put into your first episode? Sure, sure. I think the the hardest thing about this story for me has always been like figuring out where it starts and where to begin in the in the process. Um, because, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of fascinating stuff to sort of unpack in his childhood. Um, but to me, like, you, you can't begin there to kind of hook people and get them interested. Um, so to me, this, this pilot is very much starting following Ed Kemper when he is um, on the precipice of committing his first murders where he's picking up these hitchhikers and everything. It's, it's him coming to realize that he can get away with these murders and kind of psyching himself up for it. Um, that's very much like what his internal dialogue is and everything in this, um, episode. But of course he doesn't ever explicitly say that that's what he's doing. Is it hard when you're writing a character like this, who has done Mm -hmm. like demonstrably proven in courts of law, awful things, but you're also presenting, again, like we said before, they're a person, and even though they chose Mm -hmm. to do this bad stuff, is it hard as a writer to make them look too sympathetic or not sympathetic enough? How how do you walk that line? Yeah, that's been the the constant challenge of um, trying to tell this story. Um, I had a screenwriting professor basically tell me I couldn't tell the story if I didn't tell it from... Uh, Sheriff Joe Roberts' perspective. Okay, um, yeah. He was saying there's just no way you get people to sympathize um, with this guy um, without being, you know, morally questionable. That that making people sympathize with a with a serial killer isn't something you should try to do. Right. Um, but in, in in my opinion, as I've kind of approached this story, to me, um, what I've wanted to do is kind of set up this pilot episode um, to where you can kind of you know, at least understand why this guy is the way he is, at least see him for the, the pathetic human being that he is. Um, and then over the progression of the series, more and more come to recognize him for the monster. He kind of always was underneath the surface Okay, yeah, um, and everything. So it's not about uh, encouraging sympathy for him by any means. It's more just about, like I say, like getting people to really, reconcile the fact that this was a real human being who existed. Yeah, because definitely Sheriff Joe is more of a focus in terms of scene-to-scene action. Ed's still very much there, and you have that diner scene for sure, but yeah, a lot of it is sort of Sheriff Joe-focused. Right, exactly. And to to me, this story is just as much about the failures of law enforcement as it is about uh, Ed Kemper specifically, the, the limitations of law enforcement. Well, and just humanity. I mean, we're still flawed and people make sure. mistakes and you're living in the world and you don't want to think that this nerdy guy who's sort of a fan of yours is really up to way more sinister stuff than just the fact right. that he's a big dork. Right. I think I think one of the biggest things that will always scare me about life and that will probably always motivate my writing is that we can never truly know who another person is. Like, the, the fact that, like, we can never... Um, know 100% what another person is thinking um, is something that is just fundamentally scary about life to me. Wow. Do you find yourself being socially and politically activated in other parts of your life, too? Because you talk about, of course, feminism. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in what ways? Um, I'm actually currently a member of the Democratic Socialists of America here in Los Angeles. Um, I consider myself a pretty dedicated socialist. Um, I think, like, a world with better economic justice and a more equal distribution of resources is the only way we could have a more 
just society for everyone. Um, I pretty much dedicated a large portion of my life at this point to sort of um, fighting for those causes and everything. Um, I see all of my writing as being political and sort of like grounded in my personal politics and everything. Um, I, I do think that like, um, you know, it's, it's the only, the only way you can really change other people is, is through, um, sort of touching their emotions and everything. And that to me is what film and art in general can really do and everything. And I would really like to see our world become a kinder and more just place. Um, so I do that through activism, but I also do it in large part through my writing. Well, and the it, it, it's it, there's a weird dichotomy or disconnect there. If you're, you're you want to make the world a kinder, gentler place, and to achieve that through mm-hmm. a a series about a monster of a serial killer, right, right. But to me, to me, we can only start to strive towards this this better world that I have in my head if we start to really deconstruct the reasons why we have monsters in our world right now. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, sure. You can't. I mean, what's the? I mean, you got to acknowledge it. You got to admit that there's a problem there before it can be dealt with, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, to me, to me, you need to you need to diagnose the illness as much as you need to be striving for a cure. So, in terms of trying to get this thing out into the world, where are you at in the process I mean, of turning this into a, a thing that people could watch? I mean, I have it. I have it listed on the blacklist right now, um, and that's a, that's about it. I really don't who in their right mind would trust me, a 25-year-old with hardly any credits to their name, to like be a showrunner on this show. Um, I would be more than happy to um, sell it to a network and just work in a writer's room and sort of learn from a showrunner on this um, series and everything. I think this series um, would have a lot of potential, whether or not I was the one sort of acting as, you know, writer-producer on it. Um, yeah, I, I, it's 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 a funny thing with this story because um, I was really heavily in uh, Mindhunter yeah. recently, and so I, I I do kind of worry that this story is going to feel played out now. That people feel like they already have a sense of who Edmund Kemper was and everything, and that they they don't need to see you know twelve hours of television just about him. Um, but I, I as I, as I've kind of watched Mindhunter. It's it's actually given me hope that like, well, this is thing. These are things people are fascinated by. These um, sort of complex psychological machinations of serial killers are things that it's not just this bizarre fascination I have. It's this it's this deeper thing that a lot of people are sort of drawn to. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm hopeful people would want to see this story. So you seem very comfortable being able to give up some of the control on this type of story then, too. Do you imagine that you would be helpful in terms of plotting out how the whole series goes and then turning it over? Yeah, I do. I do think I could provide a certain lens of how this story should be framed. I I do think that's something I have to bring to the table with this story. Like, I sort of recognize that it's, it's a it's a fault of a masculine patriarchal culture that creates Edmund Kemper's like it's, it is a fault of, of men protecting other men that allows the Edmund Kemper's of the world to continue to exist. And that's something I would very much want to stress throughout the development of the series. So, well, I mean, because I, I I have not watched Mindhunter yet, I don't know what a big mm-hmm. role Ed plays in the show. But I mean, is this the sort of thing that maybe the the story of Ed could be almost like a spinoff from that other series? Yeah, yeah. You know, I I would hope maybe it could. The the guy that they got to portray portray Edmund Kemper, and I'm spacing on the actor's name now. I think he did a really excellent job. Um, and so you know, to me, it would be amazing to see him get a chance to portray that character in a more fleshed out full um, way. Uh, so yeah, like I, I would hope that good venture could read my script and see some merit in it, but who knows? Well, yeah, keeping it on the blacklist like that should only help for that, right? Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's $25 a month to keep it up there, but I, I suppose it's worth it.
Uh, Cameron Britton was the guy that's uh, playing him on the on the Netflix series. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think I think he he especially got the voice really accurate, and and the like facial hair and the weirdness of how he combs his hair and everything. Mm. He he nailed it. I think too that there's so much about um, the way someone speaks that is very telling about their inner emotional state mm-hmm. or sure. their inner thought process. So the fact that this guy has such a distinctive vocal pattern and placement and breath structure is is bleh, pretty freak outishly weird. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no. Listening to him talk is is really disturbing. Um, yeah. There's there's also this picture of him that just like haunts my dreams. That's like him in prison, but he's he's sort of squatting and posing, and he looks like boyish and charming and innocent. And this is after he's been convicted and everything, and he knows he's going to be in prison for life, and he's able to just like effortlessly adopt this persona where he, you know, seems completely harmless, even knowing everything that he did and everything, and that's so disturbing to me. Yeah, that's that's like people that dress up as clowns and then are in the villains in horror movies kind of scary. Just that weird right, pairing of right, right. young and innocent and evil all at the same time. Exactly. So, Carter, do you want to talk about um, other projects that you might have going on or things that you're currently working on as well? Sure, sure, yeah. So, um, my director friend and I, my friend Sergio Zaccio and I, had written a horror screenplay um, about a woman whose mother falls into a coma and she refuses to take her off of life support and the woman's ghost begins to haunt their house. Um, And we had been working on that and we wrote a version of that and I really want to go back and rewrite that and rework it and sort of like iron out the characters and everything. Um, It's a really, you know, low budget horror movie, but I think it also touches on some really like dark and intense themes about family and um, how we do and don't deal with death and everything. So trying to make a paranormal movie that, uh, that is a little more profound. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one project I'm working on. And then I also really want to make a movie about um, my childhood and uh, the town I grew up in. I grew up in a very bizarre town in Southern Colorado uh, called Colorado Springs. Um, it is the evangelical capital of the world. There's more evangelical Christians there than anywhere else in the world. It also is surrounded by five military bases. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So it was a it was a very odd place for me as this you know budding socialist and leftist to be living in and growing up in. Um, and my uh, summer between my senior year of high school and uh, my first year in college, there was this enormous wildfire that sort of rained down from the skies and destroyed this neighborhood in Colorado Springs. And it felt incredibly apocalyptic and, you know, destructive at the time. Um, And so what I'd really like to do is tell a story about these kids um, growing up in that town who, when uh, this neighborhood is evacuated in preparation for the fires, these kids storm into the neighborhood and try to take it over and turn it into an anarchist commune um, <laughs> and reclaim the suburbs for themselves, only to kind of watch their commune fall apart. Ugh. Was this based on a real thing? Did, did, were there kids that tried to do this? No, no, not at okay. all. It's just like, like it, was a, it was a thing that like my friends and I would talk about. It's like, oh, the suburbs are, are cleared out now. The okay. suburbs are free. We could do something like this. We could turn it into this, you know, free place for everyone again. <laughs> um, it was this kind of, you know, wild fantasy that, like, the punk rock kids I was uh, hanging around um, would kind of, like, talk about, but people didn't actually do it, of gotcha. course. Mm. Um, it sounds incredible. So I think it'd be funny to, it'd be, it'd be interesting to sort of, like, see how that would play out and everything. Yeah, it, that sounds real. it's like um, Lord of the Flies, except, oh, yeah. you know, kind of that theme. Yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah, sort of Lord of the Flies, meets, you know, Stand By Me. Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite movies yeah. of all time. Kids kids trying to grow up and make their own world and seeing it all fall apart. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, Carter, those things sound incredible. And if someone's interested in getting in touch with you about your work, how can they find mm-hmm. you? You know, I am pretty active on Facebook, actually. 
Um, if you just search Carter Moon, uh, you should be able to find me that way. Um, I am on Twitter at Moon in the Tube. I'm bad at Twitter. I don't use it very often. Most of what I use Twitter for is I, um, I've created this elaborate joke character <laughs> of a, a guy who is trying to start his own uh, vaping business. Oh, my gosh. oh, you're the guy that follows the, does to the vape thing. I'm yes, that is me. That is I was, me. Who, I was who's going following you guys out there. Yeah, I was going <laughs> through the account and I saw that this account was like this whole vape thing, and I'm like, who the heck is this? <laughs> yes, that's me. That's me. Um, that's me trying to be funny online. Uh, yeah, um, good. I'm not always this guy who's like super serious and wanting to talk about that's misogyny funny. and death and serial killers, like. I do also like to tell jokes about vaping because I think vaping is very funny. That's so funny. Okay, now I get. I yeah. knew it had to kind of yeah, be a joke. Yeah, yeah. It's thing. one of those things where like like people like if I just start following them because like I follow a lot of my like political activist friends on Facebook on Twitter and like they'll be very confused why this guy who's claiming to be a small business owner yeah. is following them and screaming about vapes. <laughs> Dude, that's extremely funny. There, there's a, uh, there's a yeah. few uh, accounts like that that I follow. These these wild, just sort of joke characters that people are more maybe yeah. more than one person is writing for, and they're some of my favorite things about Twitter. Exactly. That's that's you know, Twitter can be such a like gross and like toxic place to mm. deal with and everything. And I especially feel like a lot of the times, like I can't really engage effectively in the like political debates that go on there. So, like, I just like to like the people who are engaging in that kind of conversation and follow them, but then, like, use Twitter as my outlet to, like, make dumb jokes, basically. Mm-hmm. And for all the bad people out there, then every now and again you get, like, a dad boner or a share zone that's just out there killing yeah. it right now. Yes, exactly. Those are account exactly. names, by the way, um, folks. So not a thing that happens. Those are the names of these funny Twitter accounts that I'm, right. that I'm a fan of. Right. Yeah, it can make so many yeah. inappropriate names. So yeah, if you if, if people want to follow me there, they can. I also am part of a um, pop culture magazine called Crossfader Magazine, and it would mean a lot if people uh, liked that on Facebook. Um, we cover movies, television, video games, and podcasts. I'm the podcast editor. I host a podcast on there called oh. In the Crosshairs. It'd be great if people would check that out. Um, that's a great way to just kind of keep up with me and my thoughts as I talk to people about pop culture and everything in the crosshairs okay mm-hmm. well we'll put in a plug for in the crosshairs because you were nice awesome. enough to come yeah, on the script show fantastic. i would appreciate that very much yeah man for sure thank you for coming on the show yeah thank you this has been fantastic and we'll have uh, info yeah, about you it. all uh locked up online script shop show.com if uh, people want to get in touch with you no oh, fantastic thanks Sounds carter good. all righty thank you all right carter wow. Moon. yeah what a great interview energetic young man I love meeting new people and just figuring out what they've got going on. It's cool. Like when I was asking about what the relationship was, because yeah. like I wasn't exactly we know, sure. We don't know anything about him. Yeah. See, know? that's cool. Well, nice I mean, to change it up. That's what we try to get here on Script Shop. Jack says nice to change it up, but it's mostly because I've been begging all my friends to send in their scripts, and now we're starting to get new people on the show. Which I love you, friends, but also like, hello, we need to figure out how to keep the thing going. Right? Yeah. Well, sure. It's just I, I, I like mixing it up, and if nothing else, it's it's having a guest on that I don't get to hear about how great you are all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Thanks for listening, everybody. We have yeah. some ways uh, that you can uh, listen to us and learn more about what's going on on the show. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. Please get on there, leave us a rating, a review. We're on SoundCloud. There's a bunch of them, but I, I, iTunes with the review and a subscription would be awesome yeah that would be much appreciated so if you have a little bit of time please 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 figure out your itunes account password get in and <laughs> rate and review us we're free uh yeah right? yeah yeah yeah, yeah you can subscribe no problem get episodes delivered straight to your podcast app if you have one um you can also always go to our website www.scriptshopshow.com to learn all about us um read a little bit about me and jack check out all the info we have on these super cool writers that we're bringing on the show and if you're interested in submitting a script or telling someone you know and love to submit their script, they can do that through our website as well. So please send your favorite script our way so we can obsess over it the way that you do, too. Yes, please. Thank you very much. And uh, Allison is on Twitter. Are we oh, putting that out there? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm on Twitter. Um, my personal Twitter account is Your Bestie Westie. Okay. Um, your, Y-O-U-R, Bestie, B-E-S-T-I-E, Westie. Okay, and you know, I'm Script Shop like Jack. 
And, and uh, J- Jack's account is better than mine. I just try to make fun of him as much as I can, and that's basically all I've got. Well, we have a good time with it. <laughs> anyway, please check us out. Find us online. We'd appreciate it very much. Send us a, send us a rating. Send us a review. Send us an email. Send us your scripts. We'll, we'll take it all. Yeah. So until next week, friends, that's a wrap. Script Shop was created by Allison West. Hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley. Produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.